Beloved, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, yes, correct. You win the prize. (laughs) To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify him, to enjoy him, to esteem him, to honor him, to worship him. Again, we are wrapping up a missions weekend here at our beloved Santan Bible Church. The theme of the weekend was called to proclaim his excellencies. Taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. The four men who faithfully ministered the word of God through those four verses to us brought that home. Uh, Eduardo Izquierdo had verse 12, which I'll read that one to you. Because Eduardo, in his great great uh, treatment of the overall topic, giving us an update and then even expositing with the time that he had, verse 12, reminded us that the extent that you're committed to missions is the extent to which you are committed to worship, to enjoying God, to glorifying God, to esteeming God, to honoring God. And it's taken in part from verse 12. By way of reminder, verse 12 is in the context of the command, the exhortation that each and every one of us has to, again, namely, proclaim his excellencies. In verse 12, the apostle Peter said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Um, Eduardo and the other men uh, faithfully as they exposited their verses reminded us that the Apostle Peter was writing this to a group of Christians that had been suffering persecution. In particular, in the mid-60s A.D., the evil emperor Nero set Rome on fire and looking for a scapegoat, he blamed Christians. And Christians, so many of the audience, the original audience of Peter's letter, perhaps new people that had given their lives by virtue of their stand for the faith at the hand of evil Nero. One of the ways in which Nero murdered them was he would stick them on poles, cover them with pitch, and light them on fire in his garden, calling them his torches. And beloved, in the very same way that some of those Christians who gave their life for their faith lit up the garden of Nero, so also we are to light up the world with our lives, with our godly behavior, so that the world may see our good behavior and glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, what we're doing this morning is we're taking another break away from our walk through Hebrews chapter 11 in the context of this missions weekend. The sermon title this morning is A Mind for Missions. I'm going to open up the first part from Luke chapter 10 and then the second part from Philippians chapter 1. The first point, beloved, is namely the harvest is plentiful. And the second point is the fellowship is sweet. The fellowship of the harvest of souls is sweet before the Lord. And the intent is that we would have an international biblical worldview. That we would be global Christians. Even as we each have our sphere of influence, our mission field here in this beautiful, cushy, comfortable, sweet 
city of Gilbert, Arizona, that we wouldn't merely be Gilbert, United States of America Christians, but no, we would be global Christians. And that we would know, that you would know and understand your role in the great work that God is doing among the nations, that God is doing in the peoples, that you would know our missionaries and you would pray for our missionaries, that you would shepherd your children to be missions-minded. Beloved, this is the word of God. Luke chapter 10, turn there. And the setting in Luke chapter 10 is in chapter 9, Jesus had just commissioned the 12. And what he's now doing is at the beginning of chapter 10, he's sending out 70 disciples. And the question is, have they learned what he's taught? Have the 12 learned? Have the 70 learned? Are they prepared? Are they ready for this venture that he's sending them out to? And more to the point for us, the question is, are you ready? One of the lessons that we learned yesterday, one of the reminders we had yesterday, is that while we esteem the godly men that we are blessed to co-labor with, whom we could call missionaries perhaps with a capital M, who have gone out to a foreign field, who have been sent out, at the same time we realize that every man and woman who is in Christ, we are all called to be missionaries. We are all called to proclaim his excellencies. And so the question is, are you ready? We don't all go to a foreign field. We do, however, all celebrate the harvest feast. We are all part of the great mission force of the Lord, each and every one of us called to go to our mission field, in our workplace, in our school, in our home perhaps, certainly in our neighborhood as well. Beloved, listen as I read Luke chapter 10 in the first three verses. This is our text for the beginning portion of our message. This is the word of God. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is the word of God read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now again, the first point here is namely the harvest is plentiful. It is a great harvest. And what we see in these three verses around this great harvest are three words, immensity, scarcity, and authority. The first is the immensity of the harvest. Again, verse 1 begins, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two. We've seen 70 before. God had commanded Moses to appoint 70 elders over the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 11. Or when we think of the table of nations, when God dispersed the nations from the Tower of Babel, that took place in Genesis 11, but in Genesis 10, the chapter before, God lists the dispersion, and you see the 70 nations that are listed there. So again, we've seen the number 70 before in Scripture, but here in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, 70 is not the important number. The important number is two, two by twos. 
And the point here is the synergy, the fact that two things working together, two people working together, produce an effect greater than the sum of their individual efforts. Before the Lord, this is mutual help, mutual protection, mutual fellowship. This is even part of the authentic testimony. Uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has made it very clear that let all things be established based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Um, to give an idea of this and the weight behind this, you can turn to Ecclesiastes 4, or you can listen as I read in verses 9 through 12. Solomon writes of this dynamic of the power of two, of the synergy of two. Ecclesiastes 4 in verse 9, Solomon writes, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three stand, strands is not quickly torn apart. So that is the power of two, and we see multiple examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, you can think of Peter and John who were together in Acts 3 and 4. You can think of Barnabas and Saul who were together in Acts 13. And then even in Acts 15, after there was a separation between Barnabas and Paul, in Acts 15, verse 39, Barnabas went with Mark, and then in verse 40, Paul went with Silas. So again, there are multiple examples of two by two, and that's why, that helps us understand why, the missionaries we support and the missionaries we send are sent out two by two or in teams. But back here in verse 2 of Luke chapter 10, we come to the main point. The harvest is plentiful. And he was saying to them, look at the text, he was saying to them the harvest is plentiful. Uh, the point of the Lord is this is not a tiny minority. This is a vast prairie of people stretching out as far as the eye can see. Now, to be sure, many are called, but few are chosen. We do rightly understand that the percentage of the vast mass of humanity that is saved is a small percentage. But by virtue of the huge number that that small fraction comes out of, there is a vast, great harvest. And what Jesus is saying here, he's telling the 70 as they go out, he's telling you and me as you go out to your mission field, as I go out to my mission field, as, as Wardo goes out, as other men and women go even to a foreign field, that the harvest is great and the harvest is certain. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us, and it shouldn't have been a surprise to this original group of Jewish apostles and the original group of Jewish disciples, of these saved people that came from the Jewish background, because what did God tell Abraham? When Abraham was giving him his, when God was giving Abraham his promise, what did God specifically tell Abraham about his descendants? God said, I will greatly multiply your descendants as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the heaven. And to be sure, there's an ethnic dimension of that, but there's the greater spiritual dimension of that as well. So this is not a new thing about this great certain harvest. 
Beloved, many will come from north, south, east, and west. All who are given to the Son by God the Father, even as God the Father promised God the Son before time began, according to Titus 1. All who are given the Son will come. All those the Lord determines to reap will be reaped. God told Paul, for example, Paul was ministering in Corinth in Acts 18. He was running into difficulty. He was becoming discouraged. He was becoming fearful of man rather than fearful of God. So God spoke to Paul in a night vision. And he said, Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And then watch this. He says, for I have many people in this city. Many people, beloved. The children, God's children, were marked out before the foundation of the earth by God to be ready for this great harvest of reaping. So that is the immensity of the harvest. And now as we continue on to the rest of verse 2, we see that the immensity of this harvest is now met with the scarcity of the workers. Uh, Many are called, but few are chosen. But the problem is never an insufficiency of evangelism opportunities. The problem, beloved, is always there are too many people and too little time. Look at the middle of verse 2 here in Luke 10. That's why Jesus said, but... The laborers, the workers are few. And then he immediately moves into an application. He says, therefore, therefore, because the harvest is great and because the workers are few, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is commanding those 70 disciples to pray for workers. He's commanding you and me even now to pray for the workers. But then watch this. Those whom he calls to pray for workers, he now commands to be those workers. In verse 3, he says, go your ways. Go your ways. So the point is, we ask the question, who is sent? To be sure, not everyone is sent to a foreign field. Not everyone is called into a vocational ministry, but all are called. So when you ask the question, who is called? You are called. We all in Christ are called. He calls us. Jesus calls us to pray for the workers, and Jesus calls us to be those workers. The point, beloved, is this. Receivers must be givers. Disciples must become evangelists in the economy of God. And to speak when God has not spoken is presumption. But to stay silent when God has spoken is desertion and dereliction of duty. Beloved, we understand this. God is sovereign. He is in control. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need you. But... God chose you. God calls you. God commands you. He has chosen to use us. And because we have the mind of Christ in the pages of Scripture, and because he has shed his love abroad in our 
hearts. The field that is white and ripe with harvest excites our attention, our energy, and our passion. That is the immensity of the harvest, the scarcity of the workers, and then finally, the authority of those sent. And the point here in the last half of verse 3 is that on the mission field, the threat of the wolf is met by the authority of the lamb. He says, look, behold, behold, Jesus says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, if you know anything about sheep, you know anything about lambs, they are absolutely vulnerable. They have no mechanism to defend themselves. They don't have the speed to even begin to try to flee from the wolves. They have no fangs to fight back. They have no burrows in which to hide. They can't climb trees trying to escape. They don't have armor to protect them, armored skin to protect them against tooth and fang. They are absolutely vulnerable. But the application here is your shepherd. You have a shepherd that is stronger than the wolf. Demons fear him. Demons fly from him. The youngest, weakest lamb is safe in his arms, protected from the most ferocious wolf. That's the imagery that Jesus is telling us. And so many examples in Scripture of the weak and helpless against the great and mighty. You can think of Goliath and David, the Midianites and Gideon, Pharaoh and Moses, palace and tent, Egypt and Israel, army and shepherds, the strong and the weak. And what God wants us to bring home in our hearts is the more we understand our weakness, the greater we appreciate his strength, which is on our side, on your side, and part of his authority as king of kings and lord of lords. And the point, though, in the text is that his authority of the mighty one, of the commander, is passed on to you. He says again, behold, I send you. I send you. Apostello. It's the verb form of the noun from which we get the word apostle. And to be sure, in chapter 9, he sends out the 12. Here in chapter 10, he sends out the 70 in a unique situation. But now it is you and it is me. And, beloved, we, you are sent with commission. And you are sent, we are sent with authority. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul in the very well-known, beloved Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what that means, what that meant to the original 70 disciples, beloved, what that should mean to you and me is as workers sent by God, we don't abandon the harvest. We don't retreat from the battle. We don't shrink back from destruction. We don't drift away. We don't neglect so great a salvation. We don't fall away, even as we think of the author of Hebrews' warning as we are going through that. Beloved, our charge, your charge, your marching orders from God are to care for the dying and to rescue the perishing, to care for the spiritually dying, to rescue the spiritually perishing. That is our great charge. And 
A good question I will let you ask yourself. Beloved, ask yourself, have you been on the bench? Have you been sitting on the bench too much? If so, it's time to get off your keister. It's time to get on the field and join the mission force. That is God's charge to you and to me, even as we would apply these great words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 10. And let me grab just a shocking reality, a shocking truth from the Lord, even in the economy of the sovereign creator God of the universe, taken from 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter there said to his audience, he asked the question in verse 11, 2 Peter 3, what sort of people, and this is again in the context of missions, in the context of evangelism, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for, and watch this, and hastening the coming of the day of God. Do you understand that you, that I, that we accelerate the coming of Christ? And you can ask the question, how in the world with a creator God, with having foreordained whatsoever may come to pass, how in the world do I, do we hasten the day of his coming? Well, the context of verse 11 and 12 is back in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, where there Peter said this, he said, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you Watch this, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Uh, the word any there, that's the you right before that. That's the beloved, that's the saints, that he is not slow about his promise. He's patient towards you believers and not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The whole point, beloved, is you and I hasten the coming of the Lord. We hasten the coming of the day of the Lord by evangelizing, by rescuing the lost as part of God's eternal perfect plan of redemption, staggering truth. And let me have a word to anyone here this morning, friend, dear friend, if you are here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone, understand this, every person here in this room Every single human being is in one of two camps. You are either in the mission force or you're part of the mission field. There is, to be sure, a heaven to be won, and there is a hell to flee. There's an ode to one who waited too long that goes like this, capturing the tragic nature of, again, one who waited too long. Tomorrow... He promised his conscience. Tomorrow, I'll believe. Tomorrow, I'll think as I ought. Tomorrow, the Savior receive. Tomorrow, I'll conquer the lust that keeps me from heaven away. But ever his conscience repeated one and one word only today. Tomorrow, 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 day after day, it went on. Tomorrow, 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 till youth like mist had all gone till age and passion had written the final word no on his brow. And then from the shadows came death without pity, saying, now. Dear friend, today is a day of salvation. You don't know, but tomorrow morning you might wake up in eternity, in eternal hell, or by God's grace and mercy, by coming to Christ, asking for forgiveness in eternal heaven. So, 
The harvest is plentiful. The second element this morning for us, beloved, is the fellowship is sweet. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. As you turn there by way of reminder, this incredible church, this church that gave the Apostle Paul great joy was founded coming out of a situation in Acts chapter 16. Paul, Timothy, and Luke were traveling and they came upon a godly woman named Lydia and a group of other godly women by the river Gangites. And as they were coming there, they met these dear uh, ladies. And this was a pivotal event in the unfolding plan of God's redemption. This was where the gospel placed its feet for the first time on the European continent, for the first time in world history. And before I read this, let me take a step back and tell you about a harvest festival. A harvest festival is something that's been part of human history from ancient pagan times. We have in the United States of America one of my favorite holidays because I'm kind of a foodie, Thanksgiving. But a harvest festival is a celebration of the harvest. It's typically with a great feast with food from crops, often including singing, praying, and decorating with baskets and fruit and food, usually taken, drawn from the crops. And all this to say as I brought out here, we've been calling this Missions Weekend the Santan Bible Church Missions Weekend. We equally could call this the Santan Bible Church Harvest Festival. And beloved, what we see in Philippians 1 verses 3 through 5 are great blessings, three great blessings in the festival of the harvesters. And if you are in Christ, you are numbered among the harvesters. Listen as I read verses 3 through 5 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So the three great blessings, beloved, in the festival of the harvesters are thanksgiving, joy, and fellowship. The first is thanksgiving. And it's interesting because when we think in the context of prayer, the prayer of verse 4, very often we might kind of relegate thanksgiving to just a subordinate small component of prayer. But to the apostle Paul, even as he is superintended along by the Holy Spirit, Prayer is almost, it's not identical to thanksgiving, but it's almost identical to thanksgiving. And in fact, even today in many world languages, the root word or the root words behind the word they use for prayer means give thanks. That's why Paul says, look again at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And I even remember a wonderful conversation, a fellowship that I had with Eduardo when, on a Friday evening as we were driving that I was telling him and I was just gushing out my love and affection for my beloved Santan Bible Church. And what a blessing that we have here, that we are a well-taught church. We are a sanctified congregation that knows the word and loves the Lord. How even in the context of missions, we are blessed to have a thriving and growing missions ministry. But one of the elements that I talked about with Eduardo was the great blessing, again, of living in Gilbert, Arizona, which is also a great danger. Because when we are so blessed with prosperity and comfort and cush, that can engender complacency. 
And it's been well said that swimming in a sea of plenty can drown a thankful heart. That's the risk, that's the danger coupled with the blessing of even living in this choice land in which we live. Uh, the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce had these choice words. He said, one of the standards by which you can measure your maturity in prayer is the amount of time you spend rejoicing in him and thanking him for the spiritual blessings he's giving you in Christ. So another good question, beloved, dear brother, dear sister, to ask yourself is this. Is Thanksgiving demoted to last place in my prayer time? And in fact, maybe the better question to ask first is, do I have a prayer time? Do I have a regular time of day where on a regular daily basis, or maybe seven times a day you go to the Lord, whatever the case may be, do you regularly go to the Lord in prayer? Are you like Job? In Job 1.5, who would rise up early in the morning and offer up sacrifices to his children on behalf of them. Is that your pattern? So do you have a viable prayer time? If you do, praise God for it. Then the next question, taking it to the next level, is where does Thanksgiving play into that? Because it is very easy to too often ask rather than thank. It's easy to be quick to ask and slow to thank. And when we look at the biblical examples of prayer in Philippians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, uh, in the Old Testament, Brother George Lawson brought out Daniel chapter 9, beloved. What we see there is in the biblical examples of prayer, far more energy and time is spent on praise and thanksgiving rather than petition. Now, to be sure, petitions, supplications, specific requests are right and appropriate. Uh, Jesus gave the great illustration of a widow that was going before an unrighteous judge, and she was persistent. And his point there was, if an unrighteous judge will grant the request of a persistent widow, how much more will your perfectly righteous, holy God of the universe grant your request? So, Again, petition is correct, but it should take a back seat to praise and to thanksgiving. Giving thanks, beloved, should be habitual for us. It should be second nature. We should, stating the obvious, spend far more time thanking than we do asking. And what can we thank God for? Well, thank God for what he's done. Thank God for what he's doing. And thank God for what he will do. Not what he will do in answering in a specific particular way, a specific petition or request, but thanking God for what he will do, which is according to his will. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's a great thing that we can thank God for what he will do in the context of evangelism, in the context of missions. Jesus promised that he will come again and judge the world in righteousness. He will come again and even now as he intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, so also he will come and gather us up to him and we will be with him forever and ever. Those are things that we can thank God for what he will do. And beloved, as thanksgiving abounds, God is glorified, and that is the ultimate end. So, Thanksgiving, the second great blessing that we enjoy in the festival of the harvesters is joy. 
joy. Again, this beautiful, small first church in the European continent gave the Apostle Paul great joy. That's why in verse 4, look at the text, he says, always offering prayer with joy. Joy is the atmosphere of Philippians. It is, it's been called the epistle of joy. Uh, the German commentator Lisinski said this, quote, Joy is the music that runs through this epistle, the sunshine that spreads over all of it. The whole epistle radiates joy and happiness, end quote. Uh, one scholar subsequently said you can sum up Philippians in two Latin words, gadeo and gadete. I rejoice, so you rejoice too. I had Tom and Gail Gaudet sitting over here in the first service, and it, that's what their name means. And actually, Tom knew that already. I checked with him before the service. I rejoice, so you rejoice too. That is part of the great joy of this harvest celebration that we embark on in missions. Beloved, we know there's great joy in heaven when one lost sheep when one lost coin is found. We celebrate with the angels. We celebrate with one another when one lost soul is redeemed. That's why Paul says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. This is intercessory prayer. This is Paul praying on behalf of the Philippian church. Pray on behalf of Eduardo. Pray on behalf of the Greek professor and the exciting new developments in Asia, doors that are being opened. Pray for Christian and the ministry in Europe. Pray for Chris Ball in the land of California where he is ministering. And praise God for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but I digress. And beloved, I had shared this once before. I actually shared this when I went through this in Philippians. You can use your hand as a reminder for intercessory prayer. Each of your fingers representing someone or some group of people. Your thumb is your finger. It's your digit that's closest to you. So you can use your thumb as a reminder to pray for those that are nearest and dearest to you. Your, your wife, your husband, your children your brothers and sisters in Christ that are closest and nearest to you. Your pointer finger can be used to remind you to pray for those who point you to God and his glory, who point you to the truth of God, your elders, your pastors, your teachers, your Titus II women, your discipleship partners. Your middle finger is the tallest finger. It can represent those who are in authority in your life, in family, business, government. Your wing, excuse me, your ring finger is the weakest. It represent, it can represent those who are weak, those who are in trouble and pain and sickness and distress. And your little finger, any guesses on what your little finger stands for? It's the least. It's the least important and the smallest. Good guess. The little finger stands for self. Pray last and least for self. Again, it's okay to pray for self, pray for self, pray for self after you pray for your spouse, after you pray for your leaders, after you pray for the rest. Thanksgiving joy, the third great blessing in the harvest of celebration, the festival of the harvesters, is fellowship, rich fellowship in 
Philippians 1, verse 5. And I love the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is always theological in basis and practical in expression. In verse 5 he says, in view of your participation in the gospel, in view of your koinonia into the gospel, in view of your fellowship in the gospel. The gospel, beloved, it's uh, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, the gospel appears more frequently in Philippians than in any other book in the New Testament. You see it nine times. We see it nine times in the four chapters. If joy is the atmosphere of Philippians, the gospel is the theme of Philippians. John Murray, and again in the context of our missions weekend, in the context of our harvest celebration weekend, John Murray said this about the impact of the gospel and missions. He said, the passion for missions is quenched when we lose sight of the grandeur of the gospel, end quote. The grandeur of the good news of Christ's victory over sin, over Satan. And the Apostle Paul said that from the first day until now, that in view of your participation, of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, from that day years before when Paul, Timothy, and Luke encountered Lydia and the women by the river Gangites and the Philippian jailer that was subsequently saved, that basically Lydia and the jailer joyfully opened their houses and the gospel spread. This is God's blessing on them. They, mark this, continued steadfastly in the fellowship of the gospel. And Paul, we know, received a contribution from the mature church in Philippi for the benefit and for the ministry of the immature church in Corinth. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, Paul writes this. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And then I love verse 17. Listen, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Beloved, that is the great motivation behind this fellowship in the gospel of missions. And practically speaking, we could say this. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. It doesn't have to be grandiose. You don't have to get on an airplane and a helicopter and a four-day ride to some remote jungle somewhere. Because senders and supporters, speaking in the context of missionaries with a capital M going to a foreign field, senders and supporters are the co-workers with the go goers. And the glorious truth is this, beloved, when you support a righteous man, according to the economy of God, you share the righteous man's reward. Here at Santan Bible Church, we are blessed beyond measure to partner, to co-labor, with 11 missionary families, one training organization impacting 15 to 20 countries, including the training of national pastors. Uh, Eduardo pastors a church, and he's also 
part of training national leaders as well. What a joy and a blessing. And I don't have time to go through all the missionaries, or as Rob likes to be called, the global partner that we have, but I commend to you to make sure that you know who these men and these women are. And beloved, understand this. Your faithful and generous support of the ministry here is a blessing. My question to you is, do you pray for the missionaries whom you support? Stated tersely, I'll say this, beloved, pray for what you pay for. That's good stewardship. It's good stewardship to give unto the Lord, and it's good stewardship to pray for those to whom you give. So, beloved, again, this fellowship of the harvest is more giving than receiving. It's more serving than spectating. It's certainly more participating rather than applauding. So, we don't drop out. We don't become detached. We don't become spectators. We are involved partners in the gospel. We keep on keeping on, and we persevere in this great harvest, this great call from God. A man named Henry Martin was born in England in 1781. His father was a man of means, so he sent Henry to a fine grammar school and later on to Cambridge when he was 16. Four years later, at the age of 20, Henry Martin took the highest honors in mathematics at Cambridge, and a year later, at 21, he took first prize in Latin composition. Incredible promise. In his later writings, Martin said that he turned his back on God in his youth. During these days of pursuing academic achievement, he said he became disillusioned with his dreams. He wrote this specifically, I obtained my highest wishes, but was surprised to find that which I achieved and grasped was merely a fleeting shadow. The death of his father, the prayers of a godly sister, the counsel of a godly minister, and the writings of the life and diary of David Brainerd brought Martin to his knees before God, and at the age of 21, God saved him. And he forsook his pursuit of academic prestige and became a missionary. Uh, for a few years, he stayed in England, and he became the, of the assistant of Charles Simeon until his departure, until Henry Martin's departure at the age of 24 in 1805 to India. On his first day ashore in India, Henry Martin met William Carey. Martin's main work became translation. William Carey, you may know, had focused on Sanskrit and the related languages of the Hindu world. Martin decided to work in Arabic and Persian. And within two years, this incredible young man had translated the entire New Testament, a commentary on the parables, and part of the Book of Common Prayer into Hindu. And then he began his work on a Persian translation of the New Testament. Again, he was on a boat. He found himself on a boat on the way to Persia to complete this work. And this is what he wrote at that time. He said this, quote, As for the Asiatics, they are in language, customs, and religion as far removed from us as if they were inhabitants of a separate planet. I speak a little Arabic sometimes to the sailors, but their contempt of the gospel and attachment to their own superstition make their conversion appear impossible. How stupendous that power, which can make these people followers 
of the Lamb, end quote. Mission work, evangelism can, it is difficult, it can provide great years of disappointment, but beloved, the power rests with God and his word. In Henry's case, the Persian version of the New Testament he came up with wasn't as well received as this Hindu New Testament, and his health gave way in the process. He decided to return to England for recovery, this time going by land instead of by boat, revising his translation along the way. During this journey, he became terminally ill with tuberculosis in Turkey, was unable to travel further, and Henry Martin died among strangers in 1812 at the age of 31. His published journal and letters, beloved, have had an abiding influence and effect on missions, in their portrayal of the life of a missionary. And what's striking is he does not portray the life of a missionary as one of uninterrupted calm, but as a life of constant warfare of the soul. His emphasis was not the warfare and the oppression and the persecution and the difficulties from the outside, but the warfare of the soul, the warfare of the new inner man, the new inner woman with this body of death, of sanctification. He said this on the boat on the way to India, describing these struggles. He said, I found it hard to realize divine things. I was more tired with desires after the world than for two years past. The seasickness and the smell of the ship made me feel very miserable. And the prospect of leaving all the comforts and communion of saints in England to go forth to an unknown land, to endure such illness and misery with ungodly men for so many months weighed heavy on my spirits. My heart was almost ready to break. End quote for a moment. In his terminal illness, as he struggled to complete his work on the Persian New Testament, he wrote these words. He said, if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But, but whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. And then finally, if he has work for me to do, I cannot die, end quote. Beloved, that is the hope of the gospel. That is trust in the authority of the one who sent us. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Beloved, the ultimate purpose of all evangelism, including missions, is the glory of God. John Stott said this in that context. He said, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, as strong and right as that is, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Beloved, as great as our harvest celebration is, we do it for the glory of Christ. As great as the rejoicing is that we have with angels in heaven when one lost soul is rescued, as great as the celebration is that we have among ourselves, there is a greater glory, there's a greater purpose, there's a greater end. That's why God said through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
to the one an aroma from life to life, to the other an aroma from death to death. And who is adequate for these things? Beloved, this is the gospel message. This is the glory of God. This is the great pursuit that you and I are on. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you, Lord. Again, we are so greatly humbled, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, by your perfect plan, by your righteousness, by your holiness, by your justice, by your judgment against sin. Lord God, Lord Jesus, we are eternally grateful for the work you did on our behalf, for taking the stripes, for taking the blows, for taking the punishment of the holy just, righteous anger and wrath of God on yourself, on our behalf. We thank you and praise you, Lord. Help us to be empowered. Help us to be emboldened to share the good news. And Lord God, for anyone that is here this morning not trusting in you, dear God, dear Jesus, put life where there was no life before. Let them understand that if they turn to you and come to you, you will receive them to yourself they will be a new creature in christ jesus in you where old things have passed away new things have come they will be adopted into the beloved eternal hell will have no fear no danger no threat anymore and the joys of the eternal time in your presence in heaven forever will be their end may that be the case be glorified save men and women and use frail men and women like us for that And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.